Welcome to the Eventualities Podcast, interesting conversations with the people behind our favourite regional festivals and events. We dive into the memorable experiences they create, the unexpected challenges they've overcome and what they've learned along the way. Bill Horitz AM is the founder and executive director of the internationally acclaimed Woodford Folk Festival. In 1985, Bill was the inaugural president of the Queensland Folk Federation. In this role, Bill set the challenge to stage a festival of international standing as a means to boost the state of folk movement in Queensland. From this vision, the event went from the first Mullaney Folk Festival in 1987 with an attendance of 900 to the Woodford Folk Festival, which sees an aggregate attendance of 120,000 annually. The festival is one of the largest folk festivals in the world and has been described as one of our nation's major cultural assets. It is acclaimed for its inclusivity, optimism and exploration of ideas. Bill has been the recipient of many awards, including being appointed as a member of the Order of Australia, AM, a Lifetime Achievement Award from the Queensland Music Industry, and being appointed an Honorary Senior Fellow at the Sunshine Coast University. Bill's optimism has been described as pathological. Bill was a keynote speaker at the inaugural regional events conference in Wagga Wagga in 2016, and it's a delight to welcome Bill to the Eventualities podcast. Hi, Bill. Hello. Thank you for joining us. You're welcome. Um, I'd like to start with a bit about your background. Your um, career has always had strong ties with the entertainment industry, you know, hotel management, tour management, um, performing professionally in a number of bands. So can you tell us a bit about this and what initially got you interested in this industry? Uh, I was in uh, I was in Ireland and I fell in love with... Um, traditional music. Um, I, I went over to Europe with my guitar in hand and set the world alight with my rock music expertise and then fell in love with Irish music and uh, came back quite inspired uh, through the work of um, uh, and the presence of Paul Orland, my great friend, who sadly passed a couple of years back. But um, that's what got me into folk music and from folk music I developed an interest in folk law and uh, realised that the folk music is just the tip of the surface and that there was a lot more to it than what I thought. So I, I started the, the, the Folk Federation and, and the festival at Mullaney in uh, 1987 and it's been, a, uh, you know, one day we'll get it right. <laughs> so how old were you when you went over to Ireland? Um, I was 21 when I left Australia. Okay. And did you have, was music in your bones? Like, did you grow up with a musical household or did, was it something that really just you discovered in Ireland? My brothers and sisters um, used to play at family gatherings. My older brother and two younger sisters. Um, I was a bit shy. I didn't join in, but... Um, it was wonderful memories of family um, singing um, interesting songs, which was of the folk revival in the USA, you know, freight trainers coming and all those uh, all those songs it were wonderful songs. Woody Guthrie, Pete Seeger from that era. And uh, it probably had an effect on me. I didn't realise that at the time. Okay, that's interesting. So when you were in Ireland, what was it about the folklore that really, um, I guess, got into your 
into your blood because you've been living and breathing breathing this ever since. So I'd love to find a bit more out about that. I, I suppose my uh, my interest was uh, in the early years was just playing the music, uh, playing in the sessions and learning traditional music of the, uh, you know, of, from Celtic music, really, fiddles and banjos, and I played most of the instruments and had a great time, started a folk club and then started discovering an interest in folklore, meeting up with uh, folklorists, uh, people who made a lifetime study studying folklore and I got interested particularly in the word law, L-O-R-E. And uh, I was very conscious I was playing a tune in a pub in Merribra in Queensland on my little button accordion. And this old uh, German guy recognised the tune. And uh, he used to play it in these early days. He was quite old. But it struck me that that song, that tune, was never actually recorded. I've never heard it since. I still play it. And the people were playing tunes that have never been recorded and some of those tunes are hundreds of years old and that, that fascinated me. That's certainly not the bulk of tunes, um, but on occasion. So there was a tradition that was going back a long way and then when I looked into other non-Celtic music, it was the same story. I lived in, uh, when I was in Europe, I lived in Sweden for, for two years and discovered the Swedish traditional music and my god that's as rich and as beautiful as it gets um, and there was the modern day Henry Lawson living in Sweden at the time his name was Everett Tor and he played uh, I learned one of his songs uh, I played it as a tune rather than singing the song in Swedish although I did learn the song and uh, I was playing that tune on my fiddle in Karanda, many years later, this beautiful Everett Torb tune. And a folklorist called Alan Scott, uh, sadly passed now, recognised the tune. He asked me, where did you get that from? And I said, told him the story in Sweden. I picked it up from the modern day Henry Lawson, who was still alive at the time in Sweden when I was there. Uh, he was sort of a national hero. And he, uh, Alan Scott collected that song in Gainda in central Queensland and he'd never heard it before uh, until I played. It's a beautiful little melody, really beautiful little melody. And it turned out when I got the words translated um, that Everett Tall was a sailor and he stopped off the coast near Gladstone and jumped ship and then he went inland to where Gainder is and then came back to Sweden years later and wrote a song about God's own country, which was the name of the tune of the song about Gate. And it was not just that connection was just had a real effect on me. So I started looking into it a bit more and more and more and looked into it in different cultures. And I got a serious interest in Indigenous cultures and the Australian Aboriginal people. And when I learned about that, my God, the world just grew so much bigger than that narrow folk music that I was playing to begin with. So I sort of see the festival as a, an exploration, exploration into lore, L-O-R-E. And it's I a very it. powerful ethic. I was also moved by a wonderful American um, mythologist, Joseph Campbell was his name. 
one of the great people of the world, it's again sadly passed, but um, that opened up a whole world for me. I was very inspired when I saw these videos, um, the old VHS physios that you can't see anymore. I've still got them here. I don't know what to do with them. Uh, and that where he talked about myths uh, and often sort of explained that myths were not necessarily meant to be the historical truths, but rather a symbol of, of things and stories, uh, very often for children. The, the myths of the monsters in the, in, the, in the water was to keep them out of the water. Uh, and these myths and stories are much deeper than that and much more is part of our law and a very powerful, particularly in Indigenous cultures, but it's in our own cultures if you start searching and looking for it. And it's a beautiful thing. Oh, that's, I love that. Now, out of interest, are you still playing any folk music? Uh, <laughs> I pick up the instruments every now and then and <laughs> I play it for a few minutes and then I put it back in its case, though. I keep saying I haven't lost my touch. <laughs> <laughs> oh, fantastic. Okay, so it's it's 1985. You're the inaugural president of the Queensland Folk Federation. 1980. You, 1980. Okay, so then you decide that you're going to stage a festival that starts in 1987. Tell me about that thought process. Why a festival? Um, why in Queensland? Talk to me about those type of things and what you got you started. Well, when it was me to put the call the public meeting, put the team together, we formed the organisation as an incorporated association. I became its president. And we're all, it wasn't just me, but we're all sitting around the table. How are we going to fire up the folk movement in Queensland? And we, we actually read in the minutes the next day that we were going to create a festival of international standing as a long-term goal. Uh, the reason why we ended in the minutes because neither of us could remember the night before. We may have um, may have uh, taken in the bottle of knowledge. <laughs> hey, that's where all the good ideas come from, right? <laughs> uh, but it was uh, so it was a whole team of people, and we connected up to the Nambour Folk Club with the Folk Federation, which I'd started, which was in now in Brisbane. I used to hitchhike down and back uh, often and meet the people, and we started the, the festival on Friday the 13th of March 1987. Okay, and where was that held? Was it at the Folk Club? It was The uh, festival was at Mullaney. We took over the Mullaney showgrounds. I think it's fair to say we were very ambitious uh, from the start. Uh, we wanted to make a mark, and we started small, 900 people. When I look back at that festival, it was a, a great little event and it was a good starting point. But I did write in our newsletter that it was just the right size and we shouldn't let it get any bigger. <laughs> <laughs> okay. There's been lots of oops moments. <laughs> so tell me what those early years looked like. How long um, did you stay at the sports ground? Um, what did it? Con- was it a rapid growth after that first year, or did you stick to your word and keep it around that size for a few years? No, I think when I wrote, I wrote that, I was probably just lying. <laughs> I, was, I was complimenting the size of it, saying it was just right. Um, you know, uh, we were ambitious from the start. The second festival was 
uh, 3,000. The first festival was 900 actual people. So I didn't keep records of the daily tallies to give an aggregate. So it was 900 people, but it was probably an aggregate of three or 4,000 for our first festival. The second one was uh, 3,000 people. So it, it jumped. And the third one coincided, and we were hosts of the 23rd National Folk Festival in the days when the National Folk Festival used to go from state to state. So we, for, in our minds, we called it the third Mullaney Folk Festival, but the banner we used was the 23rd National Folk Festival. And we were very ambitious about that. We took big risks. And I, that was a seminal festival, I think, in Australia's folk history, looking back because we were seriously innovative. You know, it didn't feel that at the time, but we did, the, we did a children's festival, we did an Indigenous festival, we did history and speakers festival, we had an environment centre, um, and none of the other festivals have done that. And we, we built an amazing marketing campaign and we sold more tickets for that festival than the previous four national folk festivals added together. So it was a huge event. Um, and then after that, that was at Easter in 1989. So we got together in, um, that was at the end of March. And then we got together as a team. At the team our team was sort of 100 people used to gather for our meetings. And we sat, we, we sat, we had a meeting, we talked about what do we do next because we, our first two festivals were in March to coincide with the National Folk Festival, our third, in March, but we couldn't use that date anymore because that was the National Folk Festival was always at Easter, so it was moving somewhere else. So we um, finally chose the May long weekend in Queensland to discover that we couldn't, of the venue then. So, so on the May long weekend, we had a meeting and we decided then to pick the New Year date between Christmas and New Year and that we started in May uh, to hold the, the fourth festival. So our fourth festival, uh, we did both our third and fourth were in 1989. The one year. Wow. And why did you choose that Christmas, New Year? Because I think most people would probably look at that time and think, oh, it's Christmas, it's New Year, people are on holidays or with family. So what um, what made you decide to choose that time of year for the festival? Uh, I remember having this uh, meeting and I always worked hard at getting a lot of people to come to the meeting and making them interesting and getting them involved. And I had this meeting at Kangaroo Point in Brisbane under the Story Bridge, and there was about uh, oh, 80 or 90 people at the meeting, and we talked about having it at um, Christmas, New Year, and said uh, it was quite funny the way it rolled out. I'm not a comedian, but somebody said, oh, you can't pick that date because the traffic jams leaving, leaving Brisbane are huge. And then somebody else called that, that's because they're all going to the festival. <laughs> They were going in the right, so it, it turned into a sort of a bit of a comedy there, and uh, we wanted it around the holiday time. And we felt uh, by that time I was into very much into ceremonies, and 
knowing that the ceremony is a really important part of what I believe a festival should have. And so uh, the, the end of between Christmas and New Year is an important period of celebration in everyone's lives, just about everyone. And New Year's Eve is a celebration in itself, and New Year's Day, and there were permanent holidays. And we, we also reckon that we can have the same dates every year about it doesn't matter what day of the week it fell. So it's been the same dates every year. And that's very consistent in terms of marketing and selling an event. When you've got Easter, it's very hard. You can always say Easter, people know when Easter is, but sometimes it's in March and sometimes it's in April. Mm. Yeah, that's very clever. <laughs> very clever for consistency. Um, and did the event... It's now over six days. Did you start out with a six-day event or have you grown that as well over the years? No, we were a four-day event. Our fourth festival was a four-day event. And then we decided to make it five. Uh, and then we had an opportunity. It was the second Woodford Folk Festival and we were pretty much bankrupt after buying the land and building the infrastructure and uh, I made some fundamental errors with the cost of electricity. At, at the Mulaney Showgrounds, we paid the electricity bill was $3,000. And I thought, just to be sure, I'll put $30,000 in the budget and then committed the budget and go ahead. And then when we found out that the real cost was about 250000 it was a bit of a blowout, one line item. Oh, my goodness. And uh, that was a big shock. So we were really up against it. And uh, Midnight Oil came to the fore and did a, a concert and gate. So we extended the festival. We called it a contemporary music and put it in at the beginning of a new day. And so the festival, and we kept that, uh, that extra day. So thanks to Peter Garrett and Midnight Oil, they got us out of it. A bit of a hole. A bit of a pickle. Oh, I love that story. So you've just mentioned the site. So you um, have a 500-acre permanent site called Woodfordia. So this is obviously continually being developed. You've mentioned that you've had to invest in all the infrastructure, and I know you continue to do so. Um, I'd like to talk about how this came about. So how did you find the land? How did you have the money to buy it? Um, and... Yeah, I guess how are you preserving it and developing it in line with the festival over the years? Oh, Jesus, that's, <laughs> that's a book just there. <laughs> I don't know how to, where to start. We couldn't stay in the Mulaney Showgrounds. We wanted to, to stay in Mulaney with the community there right behind us. There was a group who didn't want us to be there. They were called Mad Ags. Mulaney and District Action Group, like they called themselves Mad Eggs. <laughs> and they were they were angry, but they called up like, who's fussed with all these hippies coming down and spoiling their town. But then it went to a, the local council that caused a plebiscite to happen and everyone in the Shire was able to vote. Not the whole Shire, but that division, the Mulaney area. And we won that 75 of uh, Percent of seventy-seven percent voted for us, seven uh, percent against, and the others were. Um, thanks. So we won that. So 
comfortably just shut that up. But the festival kept growing up there and we were ambitious and felt we, could, we should get our own land. So we looked around Melania and couldn't find it. And then for a, a long story cut short, we found a block of land in Woodford, which was, and so we called it the Mulaney Woodford Folk Festival in the first year and then the Woodford Mulaney Folk Festival in the second year and then just the Woodford Folk Festival then on. Okay. And is the, you, so the site's called Woodfordia. Was it already called that or did you name it that? We only called it that um, maybe less than 10 years ago. Uh, it, we, we never had a name for it. It used to be called, everyone just called it Woodford. And, and everyone calls the festival Woodford. Are you going to Woodford? Going to Woodford. So we wanted to keep the word Woodford, but it needed a name because we hosted Splendour in the Grass, for example, the big rock festival on the land for two years while they were sorting out their property. Uh, good people. And, but it seemed wrong to call it the, Wood, the Splendour in the Grass at the Woodford Folk Festival site, if, if you know what I mean. It needed yeah. a name. Uh, I came up with Woodfordia thinking I didn't actually like the name that much. But I said, let's use it until somebody comes up with a better one. Pretty pretty sure we put it out there. We talked about it for months. Well, by the time the months had ended, everyone was calling it Woodfordia. And, and I, I did this radio interview on the ABC and they called it Woodfordia too. Like the word had spread. And I, it's, it's a good name. It's, it's got the word Woodford in it. But it's different than the people who live in town who were always a little offended that they'd get called Woodford. No, this is where I live. <laughs> so it's worked out and that's what it gets called that's because that's what people call it. Okay. And so was it? did you buy the 500 acres? Was that your original purchase or have you bought more and developed more over the years? We bought um, three more blocks of land as well around it. Yeah. So... Um, raising the funds because we didn't have any money. We, we bought the land without any money. It was, uh, there's, a, there's a book just in that. <laughs> yeah, uh, but anything's possible if you, if you mind on it. We were together. There was a lot of us. It wasn't just me. It was a whole team of some great people who, um, who put it all together. And we achieved it. We even fought a uh, Supreme Court case on the eve of the festival, the very first festival, to get town planning approval. Uh, we're on the pre precipice there for a long time. I suppose what uh, all the dreaming, it was, it was good that we didn't know what we were doing because looking back, had we known what was in front of us, we, we might not have. You may have abandoned ship. <laughs> yeah, I, I think, uh, well, we'd never have abandoned ship. We probably wouldn't have made the step to do it. Because what, what was hurting us and what continues to hurt us is the infrastructure. Because the municipal infrastructure you need to house what the Woodford Folk Festival is nowadays is a resident population of 15 or 16,000 people actually living there for a week. And the showers and toilets, electricity, roads, uh, water, managing the sewerage, like it, this is... It's a, it's a town. It's a town. It's a big town. It's a big town. Mm. So if you looked at, I liken it to, I live in a town called Namble uh, on the Sunshine Coast. It has a, a resident population, according to the 
the internet at uh, 14,000. Well, we're bigger than Nambour, and you, you look at the infrastructure here, and that's what we've had to build. We've built uh, 60 amenity blocks, permanent, 60. We've built our own sewage treatment plant with underground sewage right throughout the whole site. We had to build our own potable water treatment plant. We had to build dams for the raw water. So we make our own water and no sewage leaves our site. Uh, it was looking back, I was shaking my head and wonder <laughs> why we did it and the stories that came out of it. And talk about living on an old oily rag. It, was, uh, it really was like that for a long time. Wow. And so what are you doing with the site? Obviously, you know, for those six days well, where the festival um, is on, but you're obviously you and your team are there prior to and afterwards. But what um, use is it getting throughout the rest of the year? You're holding other festivals or are people able to hire the space? What do you do with the, the land for the, yeah, for the other 11 months of the year? Well, for, the, for many years we couldn't do anything with it because we didn't have planning permission other than one festival. But to put things in context, just we were very ambitious about um, what the site would become. Um, we started a, an event called the Tree Planting Weekend. So at the Woodford Folk Festival, we used to give people a little slip of paper if they donated $5 to sponsor a tree. And then we would have tallies around how many trees are going to get planted. And at our fire event closing so many big the big numbers, would that be the total number? And everyone had cheered and we, and that's how many trees we plant. And we planted the endemic rainforest species, which were supposed to be very slow growing, but better than uh, eucalypts, which is an incredibly, uh, I, I won't go into that space, but they're very dangerous trees for parks and a fire danger. And they're not shady, you know, there's not, a lot going for guns, but the uh, the southeast Queensland rainforest is thirteen hundred different species. It's incredible, and that's what we planted. And we've planted over one hundred and ten thousand trees in that time. And some of the trees, they, they we got a survival rate of about twenty, maybe twenty five percent of the trees we planted because you couldn't maintain mass plantings, but we did pretty well. And we can now sit in the shade of um, some of those trees that are 40 foot high and thick shade and beautiful things. And we turned a very tidy dairy farm into an untidy parkland. But make no mistake, it's a park now. <laughs> and uh, uh, it's fantastic. And a well appointed park with toilet blocks, tower blocks, uh, and a lot of uh, beautiful amphitheatre and. Uh, yeah, there's some really well-equipped office, which was the old farmhouse. And we've got all the sheds and workshops and machinery now. So it's a lot easier than it was in the early years. Oh, I can only imagine. That little uh, people with the donation at the Woodford Park Fest, we collect that money, usually around $25,000, somewhere then. So it was about three or 4,000 trees. And then we, in the May long weekend, we, we invited them to come back and pay money to come to a tree planting weekend and work. And we thought that's a bit cheeky. We'll see what happens. So we had three or 400 people turn up. 
and put to get their hands dirty planting the trees on the land. And they did it with such enthusiasm. It was, it was a sight to see that sort of support. And down the years, I, there has been tens of thousands of people come to a, an event we now call the planting. And tens of thousands of people come and plant trees. And I think the beauty of that is it, it gives them some ownership of the land. They feel like it's their land. So they don't drop rubbish. They don't. They're just wonderful people. It's a wonderful clientele. We're so lucky. Yeah, so that's what we do through the year. There's other events we've held. We did six Indigenous events called The Dreaming. And we've hired it out to a couple of other small uh, functions. Um, but generally, we have to, we're to practice. It takes all year to prepare and run. So we're a bit busy to... <laughs> to worry about subleasing. Why don't you do another event? And I said, you know, really, just, just like that, do another <laughs> event. Some people, as you know, don't understand the complications of events. Mm, and what's involved. So you obviously now um, internationally recognise, as we've, we've mentioned... When did you get to the stage where you thought we need to, I guess this is a commercial business, um, we need to start bringing paid people on board, we need a team. I Obviously you've got a huge number of volunteers um, and supporters that do help you, but what at what year, I guess, did you look at this and think we need to go next level, we need to invest in our people um, and get the, the skills here to help us deliver this thing? I... Uh made a living playing fiddle in a folk music band for the early years, but I couldn't maintain that. So my first salary was equivalent to the dole, and that was in uh, 1989. Uh, I'd literally been working full-time from 1985 to then, and I was on that level for a few years. And by the time we left Mulaney down to Woodford, I think, we had a staff of five. Uh, prior to COVID, we had a full-time staff of 28. Wow. Working. But not just on the Woodford Folk Festival, yeah. the planting. And we started another uh, business called the Festival of Small Halls, um, which, has, which is going really well. And I have bits and pieces around the place of things we've been doing, a couple of conferences we've hosted. So it's a pretty pretty busy calendar. Yeah, absolutely. So you just, um, I guess, touched on COVID. So I'd like to maybe spend a little bit of time just talking about that. Um, you had the bushfires affected you before COVID. So it's been a, a big two years. Um, can you talk to us about the effect it's had on um, the Woodford Folk Festival, about your team? Um, you, There's a statement on your website to let everyone know that you won't be holding the Folk Festival again this year, but you will be having another event called Bush Time. So maybe we can talk about, yeah, some of the implications um, of the last two years on the festival. Before we go into that, there's one thing I should mention, that we bought the land and the surrounding land that we went through the Queensland floods um, in 2010. That was the most devastating floods in Queensland's history. Uh, up until then, it was a, certainly a national disaster. There was a central and 
north and western floods prior to um, the festival and the Brisbane floods just after the festival. We were in the middle of it. We copped them both. Oh. So we had a we had a metre of, a, a foot of rain during the festival and we had a metre of rain in December alone. And then in January it got heavy. And I've got footage of steel buildings floating down the middle of our festival. <laughs> oh. Devastating. Devastation. Oh. <coughs> the trees survived, but, uh, but we did this wonderful deal with council because we'd lost millions. So we sold the land, freehold land to council, we leased it back to us for 50 years and a, and a, and a, a purchase back plan that we could buy back in 25 years. So since then, it was one of the best things that's ever happened to us because our relationship with council was really strong and powerful. They're there to help us and they're great to work with. So that's, I should mention that as part of it. So we, we are no longer the freehold owners of Woodfordia. That's interesting, but it is also great to hear that you have got that good relationship with council. Um, yeah, I think that that was a very clever decision. Uh, yeah, the council were, were great. They didn't want to lose the festival. But we were going out. There's no way we could raise that sort of money. And we had a lot of creditors, so we only had a limited time to raise that money or else we'd have to um, appoint somebody to, you know, receivership. Uh, And we went very close. In fact, we had a creditors meeting and we won the rights to keep going by one vote. (laughs) It was was hairy. Oh. Goodness, yeah, okay, that would have aged you a bit. Um, okay, so you, yes, and you've had floods, so we kind of have, you know, had dealt with everything over the years, but I guess the last two years um, in particular has not just affected, you know, um, Queenslanders, it's been right across the country and internationally, so that's obviously had a huge impact. So, yeah, I'd like to hear a bit more about that if you're happy to talk about it. Sure. So the year before was the... Uh well, for two years before, there was massive fires in Queensland for the first time in the summer. Because Queensland doesn't have, it's rainy, it's wet season summer. We don't get the bushfires the same as New South Wales and Victoria, South Australia. But in Queensland, we've always been immune. But there's terrible, a really good winter rain, which is rare. It brings the undergrowth of the forest and it caught fire and so forth. For two years, we had coped with fire. The second year, of course, was the national event. And while fire wasn't a threat to the festival itself, most people who go to the festival, most is a strong word, probably not true, but a big chunk of people who go to the festival are hinterland people. They couldn't leave their homes. They couldn't come. So we took a dip. We lost uh, a lot of money. From memory, it was about six to 700000 dollars um, and then we started working on let's win out let's win the win it back this year and then COVID struck and we haven't been able to do a festival since what was uh, hard to swallow with all of that is that sometimes the festival you know most times it's a good time of the year for weather uh, since 2010 We've never had a festival go past 33 degrees in temperature. And most times in the late 
28 and 26 to 28, a um, little bit more humid than people would expect coming from interstate, but just very pleasant weather. But we're always feared the heat. We've had a couple of heat waves there in earlier years. So we, um, people used to go swimming in this nearby, just jump in their car in the camping area and drive 10K to this swimming hole. And I went out there one day and had a look and it was disgusting. There was, you know, the E. coli level was so bad. I used to come back from the pool and then infect everybody. And we used to pick it up at our medical centre. Oh. So we decided to build a lake, swimming lake. And it was the adventure of a lifetime to build. And if you want to see something really beautiful, go on our website and have a look at Lake Gula. Lake Gula is the name. Gula is, actually means koala. Okay. In the local Aboriginal language, and our, our that was the name of our senior spokesman of the Indigenous Jinnaburra people. Gula was his name. I spelled it with a K to try and to try and get that sound that he when he says it. And it's a it's an acre and a half of water surface with an island and beaches, and it's full of tropical fish. There's no subtropical. Uh, fish from freshwater fish, all natives, and the native clams, the native mussels, snails. It's the full ecosystem. And we pump the water up into wetlands, and it's the wetlands, bacteria and viruses that clean the water, and then water falls back into it. It's the, probably the biggest purpose-built natural uh, systems swimming lake in the world. And it is in stunningly beautiful and incredible to swim in. But we've never been able to promote it. Oh. <laughs> oh. We opened it at the Bushfire Festival. It would have been so distasteful to run with all that pain out there to run, you know, advertising this swimming like you. So we've never really had full use of it during the Woodford Folk Festival. We use it through the year, of course, for our other events and things. But it is the most beautiful, beautiful thing. Have a look at it on there. I will, and I'll put a link in the show notes for everyone to to have a look at as well. Amazing. Yeah, there's a couple of films there, but the one to go for, just a quick one, is um, Our Maiden Voyage. Okay. Okay. Look at it. So I, I, I got off the subject. I forget what your question No, that's okay. We were just talking about COVID um, and the last two years. So obviously the lake hasn't really been able to be utilised properly yet, hopefully next year. Um, uh, we've, we've survived because of, we've got some really good grants, mm-hmm. uh, one from the federal government, which is allowing us to continue. Um, and the Queensland government have been really helpful in the council, uh, just keeping us running because the key is if we lose our staff, that'll be the end of the Woodland Folk Festival because you lose the knowledge of how to do it. So we're down to about 12 key people and we just can't afford to lose anyone or we'll lose everything. So governments have understood that and have been helpful. And now the job will be to bring it back uh, next year and that won't be easy either because we haven't had that run-in history of people coming every year you can depend on. it's We don't know what the new normal is. You're right. I wish I had all the answers there. <laughs> I don't. Need the crystal ball, don't we? Yeah. 
Um, so what have you, I guess this is going to be, yeah, that's a huge challenge in itself. As you said, you haven't had that continuity over the last few years and there's so many factors that are outside your control. But what are you looking forward to? What are some of the things that you and the team have got planned for those, um, you know, for 2022 and beyond? Look, right now we're in the middle of um, organising bush time, which is the smaller event that we do. Uh, we've had lots of little bush events called, we call them bush time. And uh, it, it's a different animal. So we've had to learn how to do that and build it. And now we've started another business called Lake Gula Camping. So people just open up the gates and come and camp and go to the swimming. And that there was the trials on that were pretty popular. And uh, a little bit of profit coming in. Because we know we, we have to build events and things to make a profit. Um, we, we know that if you're relying on grants, if you're relying on grants, you will die. It's just a question of time. Uh, and I always say to people when I'm lecturing or talking to people, I, I always say the festival graveyard is full of really successful funding applications. <laughs> so true. So true. You have to learn, and and you can use funding, and it's very difficult for governments to give money to events because they know that they can spoil it. Um, we've got up this tens of thousands of festivals, and everyone wants money from government, but the, the wise money is to use it correctly so that you can build your bank, put your infrastructure in, the things that you keep, Um and try not to um, to depend on it. And I think governments would be more likely to give you money if you're instructed that way. Yes. Yes, nice to have, but don't rely on it. That's, that's for sure. Um, so I wanted to ask you, for those listeners out there who maybe haven't been able to experience the Woodford Folk Festival before, if they were to come along we can talk either pre-COVID or we can talk for 2022 onwards. Over those six days, what are they going to experience? Talk to me about what the um, the visitor experience is like for people who attend the festival each year. Are you talking uh, bush time or the Woodford Folk Festival? No, the Woodford Folk Festival. Yeah, uh, that's a big question. I know because we could be here again. That's probably another book. Um, but I guess a snapshot because it isn't a typical festival. It's definitely not just folk music, you've certainly exploring lots of different themes and ideas throughout um, the site. So I'd love you to just touch on some of the, I guess, the key, not themes, but the, the some of you, you know, I guess maybe your achievements that you're most proud of that you're delivering each year at the festival. And I know it changes each year, but maybe some of those things that people can experience if they come along. Yeah, it's very, very uh, difficult. Sorry. You're fine. Uh, very, very difficult question to answer because if you ask 20,000 people, you'll get 20,000 different answers. <laughs> You're the wrong person to ask what it's like. What are your favourite things? If Do you have favourite, you know, I know you're not meant to have favourite children or things like that, but do you have some of the favourite activities or, um, you know, events that take place within the festival, things you're proud of? Well, a pride is a, a, a wonderful thing, I suppose, but what I like to see at the festival are things that 
bring people together. So I love ceremonies. Our opening ceremony, our fire event at the end. We do this beautiful thing called Three Minutes of Silence on New Year's Eve. We do a sunrise concert on New Year's Day at 5 a.m. with five or 6,000 people. Uh, there's all these um, little pauses in the festival of ceremonies. I think it's really important. I love to see those going off. I think the street theatre is really an important part of the festival and things that go into the sort of the carny world, the crazy, crazy comic world. So the festival's not meant to be. There's a lot of serious topics in the talks and songs of serious people, but the whole atmosphere should be light and fun and full of goodwill of people loving each other, and they do. They uh, have ownership of it, the people who go, they won't drop rubbish on the streets and it's dead set clean. On the on the 2nd of January every year, I religiously, Amanda did it last year. I didn't do it for the first time. At uh, 2 o'clock in the afternoon on the 2nd of January, you drive around the campsites where 15,000 or 16,000 people have been living, calling home for a week, and there's not a scrap of rubbish on the ground, absolutely nothing, absolutely nothing. And it's like, oh, I get, get a tear in my eye with the, the joy from knowing our patrons uh, are, are so beautiful like that. Oh, so respectful. Yeah, we love our patrons. They're just, uh, just great people. And, the, you know, the police there have nothing to do, really. It's, it's good, good to have them, but um, they saved somebody's life there two years ago. A young man saved his life, so always been grateful for the police. Um, when, I, when I'm at the festival, I try and look for what's not going right and, and try and fix it, or at least make notes. And really the only time you can do actually planning when you're walking around the festival is when it's on. So you do a lot of your plan, this isn't quite worth we have to fix this next year, and you try and design it in your mind when it's on because that's your, your real-life experience. Yeah, you're in it. Yep. Yeah, because the number of planning areas I've made, so this is going to be great, this is going to be great, and you get in the festival and it's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you've only got one chance a year to, to do that, to trial it. So my experience at the festival is different than, um, I hope it's different than what our, our patrons feel. Oh, no, I think that's actually, re you've given a really good overview and I think something for people to go and experience if they haven't already. Um, how are you feeling about the general state of f festival and events moving forward from 2022 onwards? Are you optimistic? Are you cautious? Um, what are you thinking? Look, it's, it's critical. Festivals are, are critical. I reckon it's, um, you know, festivals and particularly regional festivals, they are the frontier of the development of Australian culture. Whether we like it or not, that's a statement of fact. And, you know, the Aussie thing, I don't like using that term, a lot of it's from birth from regional events, festivals, sporting events in the regions, I think. In the cities, it's more cosmopolitan, international. It's... It's not that sense of Australianness that's not purposely 
created just by Australians being who they are, that nothing more than that. And um, I think that's so important. So what's critical moving forward is that they come back. Um, but I think there will be a new normal. And we don't, none of us know what that is. There'll be some festivals just go off and some hurt, some pain. But where this COVID thing is a long way short of finished net yet, and we're going through a serious attack at the moment. We're being attacked by anti-vaccination people who um, think we've had to introduce the COVID passport. We're not allowed to have people in or we'd be disbanded and possibly jailed. Um, as a disbanded, certainly as a company, we'd be deregistered if we broke the law. But people are expecting us to do that and um, and very savage about it. It's a bit hard to handle, to be honest, and it's hurting. Yeah. So we'll just work our way through that. We're hoping that the mandate will, and I expect that it will finish midway through next year. But, you know, there's just too many surprises. Nobody's been able to predict where COVID's going. No one has been successfully been able to do that. So I think all bets are off and we just have to take it a week at a time. Yeah, absolutely. Um, now, I'm conscious of time, so we'll look at wrapping this up now. I do want to say I'll definitely do a link to the lake um, so people can view that. I finish the podcast each episode with a couple of quick questions, so I'll ask these. Um, the first one is, what was the last event you went to? Oh my God. Um, Being in Queensland, you may have, you know, had more of opportunities than other people across the country, but um, I know they've still been few and far between recently. Yeah, they've been few and far between. I'm just cunt. You know, can I think on that for a minute? You can think on that. We'll come back. Um, what's, have you got a favourite event that you've ever been to? It doesn't have to be your own. Um, it can be anywhere in the world. Do you have a favourite one? I know that's a big question. Oh, that was lots of events. So all particular occasions with inner events. Uh, um, I, I, uh, I saw, I think my favourite festival moment was seeing Paul Simon at the Blues Fest. And uh, so Peter invites me to Blues Fest. I go along and he put me backstage and I was like, I could reach out and touch him. And when uh, Paul Simon was singing one of the boxer, one of his famous songs, and everyone started to sing the chorus. The roof listed in the tent. It was a wonderful, wonderful, special moment. Uh, that sticks out in my mind. That's very cool. Uh, yeah, uh, look, uh, I did a, a study. I went. I was given a, a, a scholarship, a Smithsonian fellow, to study festivals based in Washington, D.C., and I had to do a study of festivals around the USA and Canada for four months. Tough job. Yeah, very tough gig. <laughs> I took it very seriously, went to a lot of events, studied them, looked at them. Um, I, I probably learned more going to meet the festival organisers at their venue when the festival wasn't on, when they had time. And uh, that was a, a wonderful learning experience. Um, and there were just really good events everywhere, you know. Like, and I, I learned one thing in the USA, Australia does events real good, you know, uh, I looked at the, the big rock festivals in Australia. We had hosted Splendour in the Grass. They do a wonderful job. 
the country music festivals, Gippie, Tamworth. These are great events. The, the folk festivals, Port Ferry, National Folk Festival, Woodford, I think they're all really good events. And I think we, I think that 12,000 miles of ocean between us and the Americans is, suits us well. I think, <laughs> I think we work pretty hard uh, and do a pretty good job. Yeah, and most of those events are regional too, so um, full credit there. But, wow, that again, you definitely need to write a book because um, some of the, your adventures are, sound amazing. Um, do you have an event on your bucket list? There's a, uh, a festival in France I'd love to go to uh, that I watch. I, you know, I just can't think of the name of it because I couldn't pronounce it anyway. <laughs> That's all right. Well, if, you, if it comes to you, we'll put it in the notes. <laughs> It's in Brittany, but France takes its culture and its festivals really seriously and their language. And uh, uh, I've not been to any festivals in France, but I've got a lot of connections and we've had a number of uh, French university students come and intern with us at Woodford. And uh, that's been wonderful. Uh, I'd like to certainly go to more Indigenous events. There's some conferences in the USA where... Uh, the American Indians gather. You know, there's two different conferences, but I was in the USA, but it didn't coincide with my trip and I'm, because I'm interested in the Indigenous. There's some great uh, street carnivals in uh, Rio de Janeiro. I think it'd be worthwhile. So there's a, a number of things. I'll probably not get to see any of them, but <laughs> I can dream away. You can dream and hopefully those international borders, you know, open up and we can get travelling again soon. Okay, last question. Your favourite thing about the festivals and events industry? That's a my guy. That's I need an hour. Look, the um, I mean, uh, music has been my life. I was a musician. I say was certainly not now, but uh, a really great concert time to be. Yeah. Um, at, at Woodford in particular, what I love is, what I'm really getting to love is the visual arts. They actually can change your body when you see something really beautiful there. And and we really work hard at celebratory event um, decor of really beautiful things. So that I look for that when I go places now that I never used to. But the music is always the the thing that seems to bind people together. Yes, absolutely. Well, um, Bill Horitz, thank you so much for your time. We all will wait with bated breath for your book to come out because I think if you're not writing it already, you should start. <laughs> <I'm> old. <laughs> Spend years writing a book and you sell a dozen copies, you know. I'm not sure that'll ever happen. Well, maybe. I think you've got a lot of um, interesting stories and certainly the history of... The um, Woodford Folk Festival, you know, should be down in writing because there's there's so much in that. So thank you so much for your time and for sharing your um, experience with us. We really appreciate it. You're most welcome. Nice talking to you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Eventualities podcast. Subscribe for future episodes and the best way you can support us is by leaving a review which helps others find the podcast. 